0: Hey there, it's JVL on The Secret Show with Bill Crystal today. We talked about CNN giving Donald Trump a town hall and also about Clarence Thomas's latest ethical problems. Here's the show. In the news this morning, we are in a place where we have drip, drip, drip Clarence Thomas news every 48 hours or so. The Washington Post has a story today about Leonard Leo of the Federal Society, uh, Arranging for Ginny Thomas to be paid $25,000 out of a nonprofit that had business before the court. And as he is making the request of Kellyanne Conway at the time, um, because he was having anyway, uh, Ginny seems to have been consulting for Kellyanne Conway. Kellyanne Conway build the nonprofit $25,000 for the $25,000 to go to Ginny Thomas. And the the Leo line here is no mention of Ginny, of course. He wanted to make sure that none of the paperwork mentioned that this is where the money was going to. Uh, and the... <sighs> The purpose of this $25,000 payment is a, again, here's the the direct quote, supplement for constitution polling and opinion consulting, which I I don't want to prejudge, but I I know a little bit about polling. I know a little bit about Kellyanne and her company, and I know a little bit about Ginny Thomas and her areas of expertise. This is basically a no-show job. This is this is the equivalent of this is twenty five thousand dollars just walking around money because she's one of us. She did not provide twenty five thousand dollars of value on on the mechanics of polling because um, that's not something she knows dick about. So I uh, and this is on top of yesterday's story about uh, Harlan Crow paying for a couple years of boarding school tuition for the grand nephew of Clarence Thomas, whom he and Ginny had taken on as a ward, uh, which I was like semi-sympathetic to, um, and I, I wrote about it in the triad yesterday. The weight of it all, though, is, I don't know, I guess I'll just ask you what you make of it, because it makes it, to me, look like the entire conservative legal world is basically the mafia, and it is, it's like, you know, somebody owns a garbage concession. And so they're making sure that Jimmy Shins gets his money, you know. And, I, uh, yeah, this is, I mean, it's bad. Um,
1: I've known the Thomases, uh, Susan and I, have, for really since coming to Washington, uh, almost, God, it's hard to believe 40 years ago. So it's somewhat painful for me even to, to discuss. And I do want to say that I think Clarence Thomas would have handed down every opinion he's handed down to the Supreme Court as he has done if he had never met any of these, you know, if he weren't married to Jenny Thomas or if he had uh, never met Harlan Crowe and all that. Yeah. I mean, he's had these views for a very long time, and they're quite well worked out. And I also do and think... And I agree with that,
0: totally. Yeah. I don't think any of this is like he was being paid to keep right. on side. It's No, it's that's why your mafia thing, I mean, weirdly, is a better, is a good example, because these we people aren't
1: being Really, most cases, they're being paid exactly to, to stay on side. It's sort of a reward and a, and a kind of uh, just, you know, spreading the money around among the friends. I think that's really true. Take care of the family, right? Right, and and, and sort of you know, helping out in a just the way the mafia guys pay for the the, the less successful mafia guys' uh, kids' education or something, right? I mean, some of it is genuinely, if you want to put it this way, kind of philanthropic or kind, but it is um, yeah, probably inappropriate, maybe not, if not illegal, but, but it's certainly inappropriate, I'd say, for a Supreme Court justice, as opposed to, you know, Matt Schlapp and Kellyanne Conway and a lot of other people sloshing huge amounts of money around to each other, which, Depending on what the rules are for 501c3s and not-for-profits and so forth, you know, if, if the donors are okay with it, it's, it's probably not our not our problem so to speak it's not it's not uh it's not impressive it's not admirable but it is what it is no so this is but this is bad and and the defenses of it which are the clarence thomas is really a nice guy and uh, and uh, it is true i think he really is a nice guy in many ways and uh, people say this who are his ideological opponents on the court and people work at the court and so forth i think he really is a many ways a very warm human being and and uh, an admirable human being in many ways given his if you look at his life story but that doesn't excuse it. I mean, this is the key point, I think, and you've made this, and I have tried to make this a little bit. The notion that he, it's precisely the whole point of ethics, rules, guidelines, let's leave aside the legality question, but just why you want to have guidelines, formal or informal, that do guard against the appearance of impropriety, it's precisely because it's your friends who are going to try to help you. Right? I mean, I think the, the argument, the, the notion that this is not a problem because these are friends of Clarence Thomas has it backwards. People who are opponents of Clarence Thomas aren't going to offer him right. free trips on yachts. They're not going to uh, take, you know, get some money to his wife for... Uh, Quote job, which may or may not be a real job, a real consulting contract on a real for a real polling firm, and so forth. It's the whole. Po- I was in government. I remember this. It's people who offered, I didn't get offered that much, and I don't think it was, I think it was in good faith when people did it. Sometimes you want to come, you know, go, go to a nice dinner, and if but it's it's precisely your friends who offer you the things that you need to say no to. So there isn't an appearance of impropriety that you're helping your friend later on, and and uh, whether you're being courted, you know, for general favor, even if there's not a particular ask uh, by, by a friend. So the notion that people can say he's a good guy, or I've been a friend of his forever, and he couldn't possibly, that's exactly, that has it all backwards, right? And that's why he should have at some point, given this whole constellation of things, said no to Harlan Crow, why the Ginny Thomas decades of activity now in the conservative movement and it turns out pretty well paid activity well well compensated activity in the compensated movement in the conservative movement is a problem and it doesn't not so much that they filed an amicus brief in this case or that case but it's all unseemly at best and and really unfortunate. I, and I think, you know, I don't know what to do about it exactly, but people who are sort of pretending no problem here, which is a kind of amazing how much so I'm why, talking about, you followed this more closely than I, yes. you wrote about it, how much the cons- conservatism, Inc. is just rallying to his defense as if there's not even a problem, as if you can't say, I think he's an admirable judge. You probably shouldn't have done this, you know, but nonetheless, I think he's an admirable judge. Yeah. They could, people could say that. That's not an incoherent
0: position, right? You, you, the, it seems to me that the most sensible conservative response to this is uh, I do not believe that any of Clarence Thomas's decisions were compromised by this. Uh, I don't believe he broke any laws, um, but this really does hurt the legitimacy of the court. And he shouldn't have done it. And we should tighten up ethics laws going forward. So this sort of thing doesn't happen again. Right. It's not, I mean, this is a perfectly reasonable defense of Clarence Thomas. And instead, what we're getting is. uh how dare ProPublica raise this and try to smear this great man? And he did nothing wrong and everything's great. And you know, Rich Lowry has a, a blog post out this morning, you know, like, oh, ProPublica investigation discovers that Justice Thomas and Harlan Crow conspired to help an old widow. You know, like, and I just don't I don't get it. And this is why it. This is why, ultimately, it makes it hard to have a charitable – it makes it hard to accept a charitable explanation of all of this when the people on that side all refuse to admit that there's anything even the least bit concerning.
1: And they describe it – I saw this a couple of places – as an attack on Clarence Thomas. <laughs> well, of course, it's, it's – maybe that is the, the motive might be hostile, but these are facts. And I don't, any, I don't think any of the facts have been really, uh, you know, controverted. And there are disclosure issues. And surely the conservative position often on these kinds of things has been, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. If there's nothing to be embarrassed about, disclose it, disclose it uh and and he's disclosed other things on his forums that other justices have uh maybe they should disclose more maybe they should be required to do certain things that lower court judges have to do that's a separate question but you can't yeah the the conservative position is everything thomas did is fine didn't have to disclose anything shouldn't have exercised any prudence in what gifts he took or didn't take it is different to take a year's tuition for a for a grandnephew that you've adopted in effect adopted and you know, really, which helps him out in life. That's a little different from a $500,000 vacation on a yacht. And I'm fine with that. If you disclose it properly, I mean, I assume, but, but anyway, but yeah, but that's not the conservative position. The conservative position
0: is just to rally to his defense. And you know what? This is like, I don't want to bring everything back to Trump, but we're going to talk about Trump in a minute anyway. Uh, Trump's position when he took over the Republican Party and conservatism was, uh, don't believe these phonies who tell you that character counts and that values are important because they're all crooked as anything. And you know what? Turns out Trump was right. <laughs> Right. I mean, this is this this is the world of the most high flying conservative intellectual types. This is how they were living their lives, because this stuff didn't happen just during Trump. This stuff is, you know, years old uh, and come some case decades old. And Trump was right about that. Trump understood that it even conservative ink was the swamp. And this stuff was how these people lived. And so. Why should conservative and Republican voters be scandalized by Donald Trump's business behavior, by his private life, when it turns out that this is what this is what all of their you know putative heroes were also doing? No, and I, I, that's right, and it does make one feel. I mean.
1: Uh, not foolish, exactly, but we were earnestly writing defenses of whatever <laughs> of Clarence Thomas's jurisprudence and of you know the conservative effort to reshape the courts away from excessive liberal judicial activism and so forth. And some of those defenses, I think, were, st- still stand up okay. But that was not, yeah, there was a lot going on that I we didn't want to see. I suppose I di- I'm not going to say we. I didn't want to see among people I knew, like the Thomases. Uh, Um, like Leonard Leo, who I never was keen on, but I mean, I would see him occasionally and we would discuss matters of, you know, the politics of the courts and so forth. And fine, he's allowed to go raise money and lobby for the confirmation of judges and so forth. But the degree to which it, it, um, it was, yes, you're right. I mean, Trump saw, uh, it's depressing when you, it's one thing, it'd be nice to blame it all on Trump, but just say this it began be in nice, 2015, 16, <laughs> and things got radically worse in 2015, yeah. 16. So we can all agree on that. But, uh, it, but yes, that is. And one it's also fair enough to say that every movement, the highest, Flown movement and the history of the world, well, you know, whatever you like the best, the Civil War, the American Revolution, had its share of grifters and people who had mixed motives and people who were also watching out for themselves and people. So that's, you know, that also doesn't discredit everything. You know, anti-communism is not discredited by the fact that there were some people doing direct mail, anti-communist direct mail, who made money off it. But, but. The degree of it, the pervasiveness of it, certainly by, I do think it changed, I'm not sure when it did, though, certainly by in the 2000s, maybe that's just my nostalgia, I'm thinking it was really better in the 90s, maybe it was ever better, I don't know, but um, I felt like when I got to Washington, there were more people who were in it for mostly good reasons. It's always a mix. We're all human beings, right? But we're we're more in it for most, more people were in it for more good reasons (laughs) than has certainly turned out to be the case 20 years later, let alone
0: today. Yeah, well, this, I mean, this is a really excellent question as to how far out to the fringes those things were, right? Because I thought of that stuff as basically being confined to the world of direct mail and talk radio Mm -hmm. in the late nineties and two thousands and to not actually be touching the serious world of, uh, you know, certainly like anybody who would be at the level of touching Supreme court confirmations and justices and all that, but whatever. Uh, so I want to talk about Trump because we have him doing a town hall on CNN and, uh, This has reignited all sorts of questions about, well, how is the media supposed to cover Trump? How are they supposed to handle it? And I have some thoughts on this, but I I wanted to pick your brain on it. Because there there are two separate issues, as far as I'm concerned. The first is, how how does the mainstream media cover Trump? But the second is the giving over of airways to Trump for something like a town hall. And I think that these two these two things are distinct from one another and shouldn't be lumped in together. So uh, let's start with the town hall. What are your thoughts on it? You know,
1: I I actually probably thought about it less than you. So you go first. I mean, you, you have thought about it. So what's your, make the distinction that you have in mind.
0: Uh, I'm against it. I don't think that you should give airtime to a pathological liar who simply cannot be, he cannot be argued back and pushed back against and fact-checked in real time because he lies over and over and over and over and over again simply as a matter of drawing breath in ways which are categorically different from everybody else in the history of you know modern serious politics. Uh, it, it would be like having a town hall with Lyndon LaRouche. Why would you give Lyndon LaRouche your air to talk without any filter between them and your audience, uh, and so that—that's my feeling on. No, on that's the, interesting. The town so, hall. So I mean,
1: there'll be a moderator or a questioner from CNN who presumably is a bit mm-hmm. of a filter and can follow, do follow-up questions maybe on his own. I don't know how they're going to run it. Um, that would be important. Yeah, I guess my slightly modified version of your dislike of it, and I don't really disagree with you, but would be. Let's put it this way. The first 20 minutes of questions, if the first 20 minutes of questions aren't about January 6th, his responsibility for January 6th, his responsibility for other attempts to breach the rule of law and so forth, then it's a failure. Then it's not appropriate because then you're just treating him like, and here's, you know, some guy running for president and here's a, it's a, it's a quote, normal town hall. I mean, if the first question isn't the Proud Boys just got convicted for seditious conspiracy You were their inspiration. You were the one who said, stand back and stand by. You, your man Roger Stone was in deep and intimate touch with them. If the whole first 20 minutes of the town hall isn't informed by our friend Tom Jocelyn's work on the Proud Boys in chapter six and chapter eight of the January 6th committee report, then, then it's bad, right? Then it is You and I both
0: understand the conventions of television and this is, the conventions of television make it impossible for a moderator or a host to simply go after somebody over and over and over when they're trying to get, I mean, this is one of the, my frustrations uh, and one of the reasons I, I hate TV and, and don't do it much uh, is because when some, when something is really important and somebody should be grilled over and over and over again, what will happen is even the best, the best moderators will, uh, Ask a question, maybe follow up once or twice. But if the person who's there doesn't want to answer it or wants to answer with lies, then very quickly you'll have to move on because the logic of television is that these people who host it have to book the next guest. And you cannot book guests who are terrified that if they come on, they will be chased down and and forced to answer something right i mean this, there has to be the understanding that you know i've you've asked me that already six times chris i'm not going to answer that you know you've gotten what you're going to get move on and the hosts always do well in the town hall i
1: think just to confirm your earlier uh, distinction makes it of course much harder because if the moderator's butting in asking the fourth follow-up question well you said this about putin here i'm going to read the quotation mr president you said putin that's really he's a real smart guy it's look how he's getting away with what he's doing in ukraine do you stand by that? Well, then you're butting into this nice questioner out there who's asking God knows what. I don't mean to demean the questioners. Maybe they'll be excellent questions. Maybe they'll have their own follow-ups. But that's not typically how they work, right? These are probably undecided voters. Well, what does that tell you already, yeah. right? Undecided yeah, Republican like, primary voters? I'm not sure who this is. Who's in this town hall, incidentally, right? I think yeah, it you'll probably get one is or something. two
0: questions about January 6th. Then it'll be about inflation. And what do we do about the border, President Trump? You know, they will just move on to president Trump, the debt ceiling negotiations are ongoing. Tell us what should ha it. I don't know. Again, I just don't think it is responsible for broadcast networks to give unfiltered airtime to somebody who has attempted to overthrow American democracy. I, I very much agree with that. I also would say someone I saw this
1: recently, I didn't follow up and read it in detail, but, um, I think the town hall format is, I mean, I guess it's gone back a a long time as far as to Athens and all that if you want to get fancy, but it was sort of invented by Roger Ailes, speaking of Fox News, um, in 68 for Nixon. And it was like Nixon was a distant fig you know, was not a popular figure, was not, not a lovable figure, let's just say that. He had lost in 60, then lost to 62 governor's race in California. And he was tricky dick, and he was cold, and he was, you know, uh, calculating and so forth. And they wanted to humanize him. So they had town halls, which were sort of vaguely presented as if regular citizens, but they were mostly softballs and you know supporters of Nixon. And now that was, I don't know that they were hosted by any network. I think they were just... Done. And then they, of course, tried to get clips on the evening news and, and stuff. But to um, so the whole town hall, it's again, one thing if it were Jake Tapper uh asking Trump questions, because I think he would have the attitude that, well, I can be tougher on, I, I, I should be courteous to, you know, someone running, a new person running for office. But Trump has a huge record here, I need to go into in depth. So he might overcome. What you correctly say is the normal reticent to be too tough on as a questioner, but certainly you can't expect the town hall guests to do that and, or town hall participants to do that. So yeah, I guess I'm with you now that I having had this discussion. Uh, I'm not whether it makes a real difference fundamentally or any, you know, I mean, who's going to watch it except Trump supporters or Trump haters? So I guess it won't change anything, but, but, but it does subtly legitimize the notion that. We're just going to treat him like another presidential candidate. And I discussed this with Dan Bowles on the conversation about a month ago, the Washington, long-time Washington Post reporter, very thoughtful. And he was, I've got to say, I, I asked him about this and, and he was the first to say, I don't quite know what to do. You know, we can't not yeah. cover the presidential race Where the Washington Post. We're going to cover if Trump is rising or falling in the polls, if this issue, if this ad's effective or that one's not. But it's inappropriate to do that with a guy who is responsible for January 6th, among other things, and is a... You know, lies all the time. And so, but we can't sort of, every piece can't have two paragraphs at the beginning. Donald Trump, who ins- incited an insurrection on January 6th, blah, 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 you know, before you get to the news. So it's a genuine problem for a news media that is set up for a normal liberal democracy and for its, for normal elections and a normal liberal democracy in the era of Trump.
0: So I I listened to that conversation with Balds, and uh, I was dismayed that he didn't have thoughts about how they should cover it, because it seems pretty obvious to me. Uh, And the obvious answer is that this is a moment in which the mainstream print press must abandon both sides' journalism. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the typical construct of any political news story is... Uh, the Leonard Leo thing that I write. So uh, the post has their scoop. They present the evidence and facts of their scoop. They then present the view of one ethics person who says that, boy, this is really troubling. And then they get a quote from another Thomas friendly ethics person who says well none of this really violates any written laws and so uh, you know this is all just an attempt to and they they have a quote from a Thomas defender uh, explaining why and that's your story and I think you can't do that uh, this I mean you and I am sorry it doesn't have to be partisan media but it the both sides ish stuff which I think is is valuable to a degree in media uh, because and the reason it's valuable is because in some cases, in the cases in which it is valuable, uh, it is a way for reporters to try to cover their own blind spots, right? If they, if they just don't see or understand the downside of something going and getting the line from the other side into the piece helps uh, hedge against them, you know, just not knowing enough on something. I think the the both side stuff has to stop when it comes to covering Trump. And, you know, Trump says something crazy. You have to report it because he's the and then you have to explain why it's crazy and and then end the piece right No, <laughs> no going to Match Schlapp to get Match Schlapp's quote justifying what Trump said. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm inclined
1: to agree with the caveat that, you know, this is how these journalists, these newspapers and magazines are set up and it's pretty deeply embedded. And those customs are, as you say, sort of embedded for a reason. And so uh, it's not even enough to do what you say, which is, you know, if he lies, Call him out on it and, 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 and do so unembarrassedly. But he, it's not even if he lies, it's sort of he, his very being requires constant <laughs> reminder of who he is. I was struck by this and looking at the Kaylee McEnany, I think, is going to host Tucker Carlson show or the former Tucker Carlson's former show, former hour, all next week. And people have sort of gently, I've just skimmed a couple articles on it, but a couple have gently pointed out that she had some problematic statements as White House press secretary. And Hmm. then afterwards, you know, as campaign spokesperson, uh, she, for example, the week after the election, just totally uh, circulated and promoted uh, the the total lies about the, you know, voting uh, fraud. And, you know, she was a very big election denier. Um, in a way, as much as Tucker was, you know, Tucker has many terrible sins, and I'm glad he's not going to be on the air anymore. So I think it'll be good for our nation. But, but actually, the election denial was—he was part of that, of course. But that was not quite his most, his favorite thing was the, you know, the racism and the bigotry, not the and the uh, replacement theory and 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 all and the conspiracies uh, and being pro-Putin. Not even the election denial. She was much more just straightforward election deny, denial. Yeah. But then it's sort of still treated as if, well, it's interesting that she'll be there and how do in the ratings. And I don't know. And again, it would be tedious to repeat in every piece. This is a person who just lied from the White House podium, lied as a campaign spokesperson, lied as a Fox News commentator. But it's kind of a relevant fact.
0: And and it should. I'm sorry. It should be. It doesn't have to be the first paragraph, but it should be in every piece. This is, you know, uh, Donald Trump, who incited a violent insurrection in an attempt to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, said on Thursday at a rally in Oshkosh. Like that, I'm... I don't know. And I can tell you right now, the, the mainstream press is not going to be equal to the task. No, I mean, and- that is
1: for me. I think that's a very important point. I was talking with a friend about this. And before we did the Dan Balls conversation, I was getting some counsel on what questions I said, I very much like and respect Dan. And in a way, what he's saying without saying it, he's a senior, very, very senior reporter at The Washington Post. What he's saying is don't count on the media to save us. You know, yes, yeah. of course, the number of institutions we can't count on to save us, and again, I'm not really saying this critically, just analytically, is a very large number of institutions. You know, the legal system, I think, did some good in 2020, obviously the courts. But I think what we're seeing now with Bragg and, and other cases, even Jean Carroll, she may well win, uh, it can't really, well, we'll see with, with Jack Smith, but it's not clear you can count on the legal system to save us. You can't count on the media to save us. Uh, you can't count on, all, on business to save us, even though they're not crazy about Trump. You can't count on Republican donors or Republican elected officials to save us, the Republican Party to save us. You're running through an awful lot of big institutions that could be and have been in the past guardrails against various abuses, still are, to be fair, in some much more than others, guardrails against some of the worst aspects of Trump and Trumpism or occasional guardrails, you might say, flexible guardrails, whatever the metaphor is. But yeah, I mean, it's bad. You know, we 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 say, and you know this, I mean, well, you know, the media is not going to be up to it, but That's itself a a very striking statement, you know, that's worth drawing on for a second. What are we what are we saying there for?
0: And I mean, if I wanted to be optimistic about it, I'd say that the media won't be as valuable to Trump this time around as it was the first time because he had to get from zero to one and he starts from one now.
1: That's a very good right. point. We won't have the less Moonves. Is that how a uh, problem of right. yeah. you know promoting Trump basically, as he acknowledged, because it was good for ratings. I mean, right.
0: well, Even if they do pr- promote him, the, the, the advantage Trump gains from that, yeah, he has is just diminishing returns. Name, not, right. uh, everyone right. knows him,
1: so it's not like oh, one more rally is going to make a big difference in people's judgment. And uh, that yeah. in that respect, it's not worth probably agonizing about too much. It's probably the uh, less of a problem than the other ways in which Trump is being helped by other institutions' uh, failure to to. Do their job in particular the Republican Party if I can just come back to obsessing on that for for one reason I I, I just did a a couple of interviews I'm going to Europe again next week and so I was talking a couple of interviews with the European journalists and you know what's really how did that happen and the degree to which when you really step back and try to go up to 30,000 feet and say okay let's get out of the week to week nightmare of it and think about it the capitulation of the Republican Party, which really means the elected officials more than anyone else, mm-hmm. but stoner world, I'd say secondly, uh, and then conservatism Inc., which is the intellectual superstructure of the Republican Party, that their utter capitulation between 2016 and you know through 2021 and now through 2023 is so important and still underappreciated that is Trump is a very effective demagogue and a very dangerous man that's why we're all against him incidentally we saw that what you said very early Trump Trump Trumpism will Trumpism tends to corrupt and Trump will corrupt you know, And Trump devotion or however you put it would corrupt. will corrupt absolutely whatever your 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 riff on the Lord Acton quote is was but it turned out to be absolutely true the degree of corruption is really startling but it needn't have been as bad if the entire Republican Party and conservative movement hadn't capitulated. It wouldn't have been as bad. Nearly as bad. It would have been bad. It would have been an unfortunate parenthesis. But it would have been Joe McCarthy. That's the way I think of it. Where there was temporary capitulation, of course, to him by large parts of the conservative movement and part of the Republican Party, but temporary, limited, willingness to fight back ultimately and a willingness to say, he was only a senator, of course, but a willingness to say that has to stop. I mean, this is a sort of parenthesis. I'm not going to repeat everything we did in those years. We were anti-communist, blah, blah, blah. But, but, but not, you know, that we're moving on, so to speak. Yeah. Not just moving on, but acting to make sure we can move on by censuring him. Think about that for a minute. That's the, right, if you want to use that analogy. Here, there's a wish to move on. But no, 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 no willingness to take any action to allow one to move on by ending this period. And yeah. The only way to end this period, of course, is not to nominate anyone again. So, the, the degree of of just the, the capitulation in 2016, the ongoing capitulation during his presidency, which was extremely important, the capitulation uh, on and after
0: January 6th, the capitulation this year—that really is so fundamental, I think. Hey, again, it's JVL. The conversation goes on from there. If you want to hear the rest of the show, head on over to Bulwark Plus and subscribe. We'd love to have you.